Hello and welcome to OPG Inspire, your source of the latest in organizational development, innovative leadership, and the tools you need to make a better world. Today I had the pleasure of sitting with John Egan, Ski and Snowboard Hall of Famer, famed ski coach, and prolific mountain guide at Sugarbush Resort in Vermont. John's achievements in skiing are extensive. He was rated one of the top 48 skiers of our time and one of the most influential people in the last 35 years by Powder Magazine in 2006 and was ranked top seven in the world by Powder in 1995. John has tackled multiple mountains and terrains that were previously labeled as unskiable, and many of his accomplishments are seen as the standard for modern extreme skiing. Outside of his career and in collaboration with OPG and the Abundance Leadership Program, John has translated his incredible experiences into a curriculum on leadership development and decision-making that has become universally renowned. As you will hear, John performed our interview remotely from Vermont. Not even OPG Inspire can pull John away from the mountains that he calls home. I honestly loved our conversation, and I think you will too. With that, my interview with John Egan. We're live right now. Uh, John, thank you so much for uh, coming on to OPG Inspire. So why don't we start um, with you telling us a bit about yourself, both your story leading up until this moment, and uh, what you're working on right now. Well, my name is John Egan, and um, I'm a Boston boy. I grew up in the city and uh, soon found a love for the mountains and uh, moved to Sugarbush, Vermont in 1976 to follow my passion to be a skier. And I didn't really know what type of skier I wanted to be, but through um, trying all the different avenues of skiing, I uh, ended up becoming a an extreme skier and climbing and skiing um, became my uh, specialty in remote areas around the world. I did it for many years on my own with my buddies. And then um, along with my brother, we formed the Egan Brothers in 1988 and really went on tour with uh, making movies and films and uh, recording all of our exploits. So that's a little little history about what I'm doing now. Right now, I'm working on a trip to Antarctica in November. I'm very excited about it. And uh, we're getting ready for our June Abundance Leadership Conference right up here at Chickabush. That's excellent. So you've been skiing either for sport, competition, education, or pleasure for over 40 years. What about putting on skis drives you to dedicate so much of your life to this activity? You know... The, the skiing really is a special thing. If you don't ski, it's hard to explain to people why this sport is so much different. But I feel that you really are truly traveling through space and time. It takes time to go down the hill and you take up space on the way down. And it's all about uh, working with the energies that are out there in the universe. And mainly gravity is what we're playing with. It's It's so much different than other sports where... You have to generate the energy to play the game or uh, pedal the bike or throw a ball, whatever. This is free energy, and it's so fun, and it's real. It's really exciting. And um, it's really been a vehicle for me to explore the world, and it's been a great one to do that. Um, And it's brought me to some of the coolest places on Earth, so... I feel pretty lucky for that. And it's also introduced me to quite an um, interesting array of people around the globe 
and I've worked at a lot of different high levels with different governments on um, boards of tourism and uh, creating ecotourism and and setting up routes in different parts of the Arctic. And um, it's just been an interesting life, really. So some of these, I mean, incredible locations, you know, some of these incredible mountains that you've skied on were previously considered unskiable, you know, and when you were looking at those mountains, what thought process happened in your mind that was different than all the professional skiers who came before you? Why were you able to do it? I'm not sure exactly why we, uh, we had a good solid approach to, uh, climbing up most of these mountains before we skied down them. So we knew the conditions that we were going to encounter on the way down. Um, we were pretty experienced in traveling in a small, tight little group. My buddies and I, um, really skied all over the world together, you know, four or five of us almost all the time together one way or the other. And, uh, you know, we just had a trust in each other's abilities and we had a common sense approach to things. We were never afraid to back off if that was not the right day on that particular mountain. So I think we always lived to see another day to try it again. And um, we did it nonstop. So we were in the zone 10 months a year, really attacking these mountain ranges all over the world. So really... Um, you know, working harmoniously with people at a high level, really, um, people call it being in the zone and there's a zone mentality in a, in a group that just heightens the levels all can get to, uh, much like in a, a jazz group, if you hear them all working or a group of mathematicians trying to land a, you know, a, a spacecraft on the moon together, um, the group mentality gets in a flow state that is really pretty incredible. And this is such a different perspective than I than so many people have of skiing. You think of it as a solo experience that you you know just you in the mountain. But what you're describing is a tight, experienced, trusting group tackling a problem together. Yes, and that's how we always um, went after these mountains. Um, and um, there was never a, a fear factor that was underlined you know if you were afraid of something or didn't feel good about something it was spoken up all the time there was a lot of discussions a lot of teamwork and um you know a lot of energy went into it so let's talk about fear real quick you know people commonly describe you as fearless however you once said that fear of what could go wrong has always been a driving force for me you've also said that fear is healthy so what does that mean? Well, I think that, um, you know, it goes back to my childhood. You know, we'd drive to a, a section of Boston and my mom would say, geez, don't get out of the car here. It's really a dangerous area. And the first thing I wanted to do when I had a day off by myself is to run to that area and see what was so dangerous about it. I couldn't figure out. It looked just like a regular sidewalk in a street and buildings and those people look like people. And I didn't understand and so I think I've always been um, inquisitive and kind of uh, suss things out a little bit. So understanding the science behind the snow crystal and avalanches, uh, climbing 
um, you know, understanding the problem really eliminates uh, the doubt that's in there. Fear is a good thing because it, it drives you to decipher what's wrong. Um, if you just say, oh, I'm afraid of it and back away without trying to uh, delve into the issue and see what is going on with what you're afraid of, um, it's a very different tool. It's used against you. But in situations where it's life or death on the mountain, I think um, the fear has to be, you know, dissected and looked at piece by piece and figure each one out one step at a time. Mm-hmm. So why do you think you appear to be fearless to other people who don't understand the sport so well? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, I've always been able to stay calm um, in crazy situations. I uh, spent a lot of my childhood at New England Dragway uh, racing go-karts and motorcycles and later in life cars. And there's so much going on when you're going over 100 miles an hour on a motorcycle and it's less than a quarter mile that you're reaching that speed at. that you just learn to listen to everything that's going on. And I, I took that same approach with skiing. And uh, early in my career, I was lucky enough to ski with Denise McCluggage and her program on centered skiing, which really had you meditate about the shape and the feel and what was going on with the energy of skiing, and then go out and ski for a little bit and then come back in and meditate for another hour. So I, I've really been into the mindfulness of uh, the sport and how to stay calm during those things. So I think because I don't outwardly um, look afraid or I continue to to ski when there's an avalanche or a cornice that breaks behind me, people think um, not afraid, but I'm just doing what needs to be done at the time to get through what's going on. And that is a pretty amazing video if anyone hasn't seen it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your role in OPG's Abundance Leadership. You're both a coach and an educator for the participants that attend. Um, what is the primary focus of your portion of the course? Well, we did a case study on a mountaineering accident that happened in Russia in 1990. And um, over 34 people perished in uh, 48 hours up on Mount Elbrus. And the decisions that were made on the mountain by the different players in there really um, mapped out their um, their trajectory and towards what would happen to them. And it's a very uh, in-depth study that we look into uh, these characters. So I'm really there to explain what was going on in the trip. I am one of the people in the story and uh, uh, bring it um, right to to the classroom, from the mountain to the classroom. The experiences that I've had uh, working with uh, government or tragedies or mountaineering things um, have really led me to have a, a great view of leadership, and in particular what I like to call leadership from behind. So not the big boisterous boss in front, but really coaching the group um, from a mindful spot, uh, not exactly in the front. Does that make sense? Absolutely. 
And, you know, one, th one thing that I loved about your description of skiing is, is something called when you said free energy, you know, uh, people always assume that they need to, that, that the energy that they need to do something as a leader doesn't exist or that they, they require more than they already have. Um, does that a concept of free energy buy into the uh, concept of abundance leadership as well? It really does, because if you're abundant and you're open to options, ideas, other people's views, and uh, along with current trends and past experiences, I think you'll see the energies needed to get the task done. And if you're more set in your ways, as um, an example in skiing would be you only have one way to turn and, and you know, it doesn't work in all conditions. and um, that's why that, that energy that's there already and, and is in your business, it's in your team. Um, it just needs to be tapped and it's, it's sometimes hard mm -hmm. to get out. So I've heard talk of Egan's law of perpendicularity. What is this law? <laughs> well, much like a glass of water sitting on a table, it doesn't fall over because it's sitting flat. It's perpendicular to the, the table. Um, if you put it on its side, it may or may not balance. We don't know. When we stand and play and, and walk and run and jump and play most sports, we're on a flat surface. And we understand up, down, left, right, according to our equilibrium, equilibrium understanding that perpendicular to the playing field. When we go skiing, we're on an incline and we don't play on inclines as human beings very often. We rarely park at the bottom of the hill or the top of the hill because it's really fun to carry the groceries up and down. Um, so our equilibrium isn't ready to jump, dance, skip, run, do all those things that we're able to do on a flat field or floor on an incline because we are in fear mode. We're, we're off our access, if you will. We are not perpendicular to the playing field. And that's one of the things that makes it really hard for people to conquer, especially the steeper it goes, Robert. So it sounds like if you're not approaching the problem of a really tough terrain with knowledge and confidence and be the ability to stay calm, it'll be much more difficult to keep that perpendicularity that you're talking about it will be for sure and in skiing um the the brain the head the eyes the ears everything that works well for you needs to be 90 degrees to however steep it is and the human natural thing to do when we're afraid is to back up we always hear back up watch out don't do this Yet diving in head first, you can actually see the terrain for what it is. And you're not looking at it from the, um, I guess, the back seat, if you will. Mm -hmm. Is this a concept you cover in your leadership teachings? It is, because it's valuable information that centers yourself. So what you need to be relaxed and how much information that is for this meeting or for understanding the project, whatever it is, you need to have a balanced look at that. And that's not looking at it from just one side. It's really a, a, 
a perpendicular way to look at it so you can see the whole playing field. So, you know, kind of uh, bringing it back to that case study that you were just talking about, the mountaineering accident, what does it mean to be a leader in a life-threatening situation? And how is the approach similar or different to, you know, an average leadership position? A lot of our listeners are sitting at desks right now instead of, you know, helping, helping save lives on the side of a mountain. <laughs> well, I understand that. And it's, um, it's very different if, you, if you're going to lose a life, if something goes wrong, as opposed to uh, losing a customer or losing that valued employee because um, things didn't go the way they should. They always say most people leave their bosses, not their jobs. And, um, you know, the, uh, the, the calmness at which you handle the situation really does help. And understanding and having empathy for what the uh, person is, or, or employee or, or group is afraid of is really important. The, the fears need to be understood and um, discussed. And a big part of that also sounds like being able to trust in your team in an ex tight, experienced, trusting group like we were just talking about before. Well, that plays into it huge because you know that your teammates are going to get their particular tasks done, their jobs done, and that worry is not a concern. So that part of uh, data in your brain that's taken up worrying, like if, if Sally's going to get this done or this team B is going to meet team C's goals, whatever it is, um, that, that, that frees up the mind to actually continue to create more work, find a way to get that work done better, or see what's going on in the team um, where they can actually be a, a um, person to change and help them with their issues. So it seems like you've led an amazing life so far because you were able to make a career out of following your passion. What do you recommend for listeners on how they can do the same for their passions, but also what they should avoid when they're trying to make a career out of them? Well, first of all, don't take yourself too seriously right off the bat for sure. And, and try and keep that through the whole thing. But you know, I followed my passion in skiing, and I found ways to do that um, through hard work. Um, I uh, worked in a trucking business, and, and for five years, I've built homes and always had a, another source of income so that the, the skiing was always my passion and my, my, um, my free time and, and not necessarily the need. Um, so many people I see go out and they're going to make it or break it. Um, and all they do is, is ski and really you need to be a well-rounded person to make it all work. And you're going to find the niche that allows you to stay close to your passion your whole life. Some people stop following their dreams and they miss half the shiny things that are right next to them in life because they're so focused on that goal. And I really think it's important that you take it slow and steady and be true to yourself and um, find a way to make ends meet one way or the other. But um, it can't always be your passion providing your living and your livelihood. Mm -hmm. So, John, uh, 
you mentioned uh, abundance leadership coming up in June. Um, anything, you know, what's going on in Antarctica? You, are, you said you're going up there or, or down there, sorry. Down there, yes, Antarctica is south. Um, and we're going there in November. Uh, I, I am a guide on a cruise ship that will bring people down to do all sorts of things from just photographs and scientific experiments to just recreational ski. And I'll be guiding the ski trips. Um, there'll be about 40 of us guides. Um, it's 130 passenger cruise ship, ice axe expeditions. Uh, I am working for them for this particular trip. And I'm really excited. It'll be my sixth continent when I turn 60 this year. So I'm very excited to uh, get six decades of life under my belt and ski six continents so far. All right. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so uh, how can our listeners uh how can our listeners learn more about John Egan? Where should they go? Well, the website is feeltheturn.com. 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 You got it. And uh it has my upcoming trips on there. It has the leadership conference on there. And uh there's a a video that was made for the 2016 induction into the Hall of Fame when my brother and I were inducted in to the U.S. and uh, Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And um, it has schedule of events and all sorts of things on there. So, yeah, we're really excited about it. You know, the fun thing about the upcoming June event, too, now that we're talking about it, there is the, uh, the fact that we use horses. Uh, during the June event, because in the in the winter when we run the Abundance Leadership Conference, we'll dig snow caves and go snowshoeing and really get the feel of what these people are going through up on the mountain. And it's a lot warmer in the summer, obviously, so we can't do that. But we use horses, and I'll tell you, horses are really sensitive beings, and they will awaken your awareness of how people can really tell how you're feeling, whether you think they can see right through you or not. Just from looking at the photos of your previous session last June, the, it looks like such an amazing, life-changing session. So I'm excited to hear what the participants have to say this year. Yeah, I really am every year to, to see a whole new group of people just show up and really get something out of it. It's Probably one of the most rewarding parts of my whole career is sharing um, the knowledge that I have with uh, Tony and Maria and Laura and sharing it with these people. It's just, it's an amazing experience on both sides. Well, I think there's no better place than that to stop. Um, John, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing more about what you're up to. All right, great. Thank you so much, Robert. That was my interview with John Egan, Ski and Snowboard Hall of Famer and coach in the Abundance Leadership Program at OPG. To learn more about John's work, head over to feeltheturn.com or head up to Sugarbush in Vermont to see him utilizing gravity down the hills for yourself. To learn more about working with John in Abundance Leadership, head over to orgpg.com. So many elements of John's perspective on leadership are unique, but I especially found that his tips on how to ski in unskiable terrain really stuck with me. Think of the unskiable mountain as the white whale in your line of work, a market that no one has broken into, a product that was never invented, or a game-changing concept that no one has thought up. 
Before the event, none of these things are even seen as options on the table. It requires an experienced, confident mind to even recognize the potential. Once recognized, just attempting an impossible feat is not enough. You must know the terrain and understand your problem first. As John said, climbing the mountain on foot is an essential element of skiing down it afterwards. So analyze every bit of data you have. Remain observant, attentive, and in the zone at all times. When the moment has come for you to ski your unskiable mountain, remember that this is not a one-person show. Have a team that is airtight, experienced, and trusting. And of course, don't forget John's most important lesson of all. Don't take yourself too seriously. This is Robert Roach, signing off.